Welcome to another episode of Life Stories by Congo Kid, where I share my experiences of growing up in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Central Africa. My hope is you find knowledge, entertainment, information, and insight of another culture and a new perspective of the Congolese people and Africa. Most Americans only speak one language. While other languages are widely spoken in various areas of the U.S., since our educational system is in English, almost everyone learns to read and write in English. There are exceptions, of course, of bilingual education, especially here in Southern California. But the goal is to wean students from Spanish, for example, and ultimately be educated in English. Thus, it is safe to say that almost everyone here learns to read and write in their first language, also known as their mother tongue. Where anybody with a library card can get virtually any book to read or study, for free no less, or buy books online in their first language, it is hard to understand how people from a language group in Central Africa, for instance, get the opportunity to read in their mother tongue. So how do people in remote areas throughout the world get books written or translated into their native language or their mother tongue? Wycliffe Bible Translators, also known as the Summer Institute of Linguistics, or SIL, was founded by William Cameron Townsend in 1942. He discovered that when he was delivering Spanish Bibles to people in South America that didn't speak Spanish, he decided that everyone should have scripture in their own language. The organization is named after John Wycliffe, who was the first person to translate the Bible into Middle English so the common man could read it in the 1300s. Wycliffe Bible Translators has selected language groups in Papua New Guinea, South America, countries all over Africa, and other remote areas for translation. With over 7,100 languages in the world currently, SIL has translated the New Testament into over 2,000 of those languages, and the entire Bible in many of those languages. Today, we will be hearing from Margaret Hill, who has served with SIL for 45 years, and she has no plans to stop. She has taken classes in anthropology, cultural history, and other language translation topics to get training for this work. She's helped translate the Bible into a language in Nigeria called Nambila, as well as Mbaka, a language in the northwest corner of Congo, where I grew up. In addition, she has led workshops and training all over Africa and Asia during her tenure. And with the power of the internet, Zoom, and translation software, she's currently working with a language group in Bangladesh from her home in Manchester, England. I lived next door to Margaret and her teammate Elaine in 1982 through 1983, while they were starting the translation of the Bible into Mbaka, a local language in our area. There were about 1 million Mbaka speakers at the time. And even though she would often run to my house to tell me to turn my stereo down, I mean, what's wrong with some loud 1980s music from Boston, Blondie, Journey, or Neil Diamond once in a while? Nonetheless, she still agreed to come on today after 38 years since we'd last talked. Before we hear about the process of translation, 
there are a few things we need to understand first about languages. Languages are classified as either robust or endangered. Margaret explains. If you really want to know the details of that, you want to look at a scale, which is called the EGIDS scale, E-G-I-D-S, which you can find online. And it scales languages from one through 10. And one is your enormously international languages like English or Spanish. And 10 is extinct, which would be Latin, for example. And then between that, you have how, uh, how viable the language is. So the big thing is who is still speaking this language, which generation? So if everybody is speaking it, it's usually between 1 and 6a. But if only the, um, the, the parent generation is speaking it and the children are not learning it, it becomes a seven, grade seven language and it's heading for uh, disappearing unless something happens about it. And then you have languages that only the grandparent generation is speaking and that's most certainly endangered. So there are various ways of scaling this and of measuring it. The size is also somewhat important. The smaller the language, the more endangered, other things considered. In certain very remote areas, the translators would need to learn the language, learn the culture, create an alphabet, teach the locals how to read and write, and then start translating. In the 1950s and 60s, the process to translate the Bible would run sometimes up to 40 years. Now, with computers and software designed for this work, this time period can be cut to four to five years for translating the New Testament, for example. It was 1982, actually, we started the New Testament, did it for three years, then went away and did other languages, and then came back to the Old Testament in the 90s and took six years in the 90s. While hard for most Americans to understand the concept, Reading something in one's first language or mother tongue is so important for many reasons. Well, there definitely is a difference. First of all, in any population, you've got various pieces, as it were, of the population. So you've got people who, yes, are completely fluent and can read in the national language. You've also got many monolingual people who can't possibly understand and read in French or English or whatever it is. But even for those who have got good education in another language, the message of the Bible stays foreign if it's not in the language that they really think and speak. They can manage the French, they can understand the French in many cases, and there are many concepts that don't come over very well unless you really understand them in your own mother tongue. So mother tongue scriptures are very important, even for highly educated Mbarka people who will have a French Bible and they'll have an Mbarka Bible, and they speak to them in a different way from the spiritual point of view. So what determines if a language qualifies for a Bible translation? Well, the number one is the desire of the local people. 
particularly the churches, if there are churches in the area, you want to find out, does the church feel that it needs scripture in, it, in the language? Because we work with the churches. Now, this is all the churches. This will be Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, Pentecostal, Anglican, you name it, we will work with everything that is named Christian that isn't a cult, isn't a sect. And then the second point you've already covered in a way is, is this language viable? Who speaks it? And one of the interesting ways of discovering the vitality of a language is go to a school and listen what language are the children playing in in the playgrounds. If they're all playing in the trade language like Lingala or Swahili, and nobody is using the local language of that area, you know that that language is heading towards not being used anymore. So that's of concern. So you'd be looking at all those points. And then, of course, in an area where there's no church, you'd be working with those who want to evangelize that area. This can happen in um, areas where, where there are no Christians or very, very few Christians. There still can be motivation for translation. Well, they would then, if those two conditions are met, they definitely would be considered good candidates. And then other things come into play then, how easy it is to get educated people who can go for training, who speak these languages. You'd want to know who the church can actually come up with in the way of future mother tongue translators. And the size does play into this. If you had 10 languages and they were all suitable, and a couple of those were half a million, you would start with the larger languages, obviously. Then begins the process of selecting the translation team. The churches chose them. We laid out the qualifications that were necessary. We were asking for at least a university degree. This is a large group with a lot of educated people. We would like them also to have had theological training. And then they each chose four or five people and we ran a course and we found out which ones had the talents for it. It is a talent. Some people are good at it and some people aren't with the same education. So it was necessary to have some choice here. And they had to be a moral standing, of course. It was necessary, the church was saying, these were good people and they're capable of doing the work and we view them as respectable members of our church. So the Catholics, we had two dioceses. So each of the dioceses sent three or four people and we had two Protestant denominations and they each sent certain people. We then actually had a four-day course at one of the centers and from that, we found which of those men, and I'm afraid they were all men, nobody sent us any women, and we found out which of those men appeared to have the best talent to do this and who worked well with others. We amusingly did one or two jobs like getting some Lego and having them make a house in groups and watching how they did it and watching the person who wasn't cooperating with the others 
or the one who was doing things completely on his own and didn't want to do it with others. We, we did various sort of simulator almost things to find out who is a good cooperative member of a team. And then the men in question were chosen and then they came for training. While the SIL team learns some of the culture during their tenure, the true understanding of the culture and thus how that impacts the translation work to truly capture the meaning is ultimately dependent on the actual local translators. We weren't the leaders, we were the exegetes. So our job was to make certain that what they were doing in the way of translation did represent the Hebrew and the Greek respectively for the Old Testament and the New Testament. Cultural matters was a question of really discussing together. They were the ones who knew their culture. And some of them knew it better than others, which was quite interesting. We had one of the Protestants was the son of a pastor, and he was pretty awful at anything to do with culture because he'd just not experienced it. Whereas the other three had become Christians as teenagers, and they had far more of a knowledge of the, of the local Embarka culture. But they were the ones who were telling us what was happening. So when we were looking for words, we would sit down with them and we'd discuss in a mixture of Embarka and French usually. And we would together discuss and find suitable words for substitution or things like that. So it was a corporate team effort, basically. Since languages change and different people within a language group understand different words and concepts, it is important to translate to meet the needs of the general population. Yes, you've got to be careful with this because there's another element. Languages change all the time. And we reckon that you need to revise any scripture after about 25 to 30 years because the language has changed. And it's important not to have a translation which is suitable only for <clears throat> men of 70. You want something that's, that's meeting the needs of the general population. So you have to be careful with this. So where do you start when faced with a new language to translate? Where you start depends very much on the particular group. If it's a standard Christian group with no particular special needs of any sort, you normally start with Luke. So that's a fairly typical beginning point. And I understand that in certain situations, Australian Aborigines, the main thing they're interested in is beginning stories. So they always start with Genesis there. So it depends very much on the particular group and their particular needs. And then the order from there, you've got two things in balance. One is you don't want to make the poor translators translate a book that's very difficult early on. And on the other hand, you want to translate books that will be useful immediately to that particular group. So in the case of the New Testament, we started with the usual Gospels, then Acts, and then we talked with church leaders there and said, what would you particularly like of the epistles? Well, they started by saying Romans. We said, nah, well, no, that's a bit too difficult as a first epistle. What else? And they said, ah, yes, we would like one Timothy. We said, right. Why do you want why, one Timothy? 
And they said it's because the choice of deacons is very bad in the churches. They tend to choose the richest person who may be a polygamist, may be immoral in various ways, and they're not really thinking about the choice of deacons. So we would like one Timothy, because that very much lays out exactly who the leaders should be in the church. So we said, all right, one Timothy is, is manageable. So after we finished Acts with the Embarker team, we went straight to one Timothy. And then they circulated it in all the churches, the Protestant churches particularly, and it really helped with their choice of deacons. So that was a particular reason. You can't start with things that are too difficult for the translators, but you also want to think about what would be useful and what is needed in that group. This is tedious work for sure. Margaret shared what a typical day looked like for her translation team. We would be working all morning with the translators, with a coffee break in the middle. And frequently, one of us would be working with one of the translators, preparing the next book he was going to translate. So we had all the commentaries and stuff out. And we would be going through all the different points to help him discuss with him difficult terms. Together, we would look at dictionary entries, if necessary, for, for it, look up pictures. We had computers by then. So to some extent, we were able to look things up. Not like today. It wasn't as easy as today. So one of us would probably be working with a translator. The translators had separate little offices and they were doing first drafts of different books. So we actually had one translator concentrating on the historical books. So he was working his way through Samuel, the two Samuels, the two Kings, two Chronicles. Another translator was a poet. He was a musician and he was working on Psalms and the songs in the New Testament and Proverbs and so on. Then when they'd finished the particular thing, it was typed up. At that point, they were still handwriting. Can you believe it? But it went to our typist. We had a typist called Joshua, and he had a very early computer. It was a Radio Shack. And then that became later on, we had a sharp, and then we had better and better computers through the years. But whatever we had at that particular point, he typed up the, the stuff in there. And then at night, we printed it out. And then the next day, it was put in the folders of the translators. They checked it. And then they swapped folders in twos. So we had a chart about this. So one translator would then work through the work of another translator with a pencil marking in places where he thought it wasn't clear. And then the other translator would accept the changes, then he'd ink it in with, with a pen. This is what we used to do. And then if he didn't agree, he put a D in the margin discussion. And then on Friday morning, we would all together as a team have a blackboard and we would go through a number of things to discuss that had come up. Sometimes it was a, a term that they weren't agreeing on. Sometimes it was a particular little passage. So the, that was the normal morning work. And then in the afternoon, they went home and worked on other things at home. And we worked on preparation for the next day. 
And that was basically the pattern until we were getting nearer to having books finished and then they were reading them aloud as a group. And that was, is also very important. And then we had recordings being done and I was doing computer work throughout this. We had computer checks. We were just before Paratex came out. Paratex came out just about at the end of the Embarker Bible. Now today you would type it into Paratext this is our very good translation software. And in Paratex, you can run all sorts of controls and checks. Simple things like your speech marks have begun and they never end. You can find spelling lists so that any word that only comes once, you check it to be sure it's not a spelling mistake. You can check that sentences that end with a full stop begin with a capital letter and a whole bunch of other useful things. But we were just before, we were right on the edge of that. So that was a sort of a typical day. And then certain weekends, we would go out with the translators and we would run what we call scripture engagement seminars where church leaders came from both Protestant and Catholic, and they would come together to a village and the village would house them. And for two days, we'd be reading scripture, doing Bible studies with them, teaching them all manner of different things that would help them as church leaders. And this was great fun. We enjoyed our, our weekends doing this. And it was good for the translators. They saw their work immediately being used. So those were our typical work patterns. I'm helping edit and translate a pastoral leadership book from English into Lingala. One needs to understand that one of the biggest challenges is conveying a word or concept that is known to us in English, for example, and conveying that word or concept in another language where it oftentimes doesn't exist. There are certainly words that come in the Bible that don't exist in an African culture. And there are at least three ways of dealing with them. One word, for instance, is snow. Definitely you don't have snow in Congo. Now there's only one mention of snow in the Bible that's historical. And that's where one of David's men killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. Now, that is a historical fact that he was there and it was a snowy day. And there you have to say something like, it was very cold with white rain. But in other places, snow is used in a figure of speech. So in the transfiguration of Jesus, it says that his clothes became white as snow. Well, there you don't need to use snow. You can use either a local equivalent or what we call an idiophone which is an expression word. So we said that his clothes became very white, prrr, which was the Mbarka way of saying very, very white. And they immediately would get that. So there's a difference between figures of speech where you could adjust it and actual historical facts where you can't adjust it. So it depended if it was historical fact or whether it was a figure of speech. And historical facts, you either can use a loan word. For instance, there were certain words in Lingala that everybody knew. Mapa would be an example of that for bread. Everybody knows that word. 
we say that if a middle-aged woman in the village who has not traveled knows a word, that it's already in the language. Otherwise, you can use an expression that explains it, a descriptive expression, or the word plus a descriptive expression. We had illustrations, we have illustrations in the New Testament and in the Bible, and you choose illustrations to try to help get over the difficult things. So those are some of the ways you deal with what we call unknown concepts. The work and journey was daunting. In her 45 years in this work, Margaret has seen the process and the technology come so far to really bring efficiencies and speed and accuracy to the effort. Well, I think the one that we've missed out somewhere en route in this is the fact that now the tools that we have are far superior to what we had in the first place. Now, the early translations, of course, they had no computers at all. So they were typing things up and then using whiteout to make corrections. We experienced that at the very beginning in Nigeria, and it was an absolute menace because you had things typed up and you corrected one lot of mistakes and then you got different mistakes the next time round and that sort of thing. I mean, it was extremely difficult. The beginning of computers was marvelous. Even our very basic computer, it was so much better. So the fact that we were able to use all this technology and the technology has got better and better I now check with a team that's working in Bangladesh, and I can look at their translation beforehand. I can see the free translation. I can see the word-for-word translation. I can even run some checks on it. I can teach them to run checks on their translation, and I can see exactly where we're going. And this is much quicker than if I was given an exercise book with the handwritten translation in it. You see the point. It's better translation and it's quicker translation. So this is a a real difference over the years. Besides the joy and satisfaction of ultimately completing the project, during the journey, Margaret shared what she most enjoyed. It was the scripture engagement seminars that we did at the weekends with church leaders. I think that was the greatest joy. We had Catholic catechists, we had priests, we had pastors, we had the lower level predicator in the village type of preacher, people from all the churches, and they were coming together and they were doing Bible study together. They were reading God's word for the first time in their own language, and they really enjoyed it. We got a lot of fun out of that. Generally speaking, that was the the most fascinating and encouraging part of it, to see all the churches, both Protestant and Catholic, all taking to this scripture and using it in their services and for their own ministries. And that was great. SIL's primary mission is to translate the Bible into languages so people can read scripture in their mother tongue. But in addition... They also translate other materials, training manuals, books, and the like. Quite a lot of stuff, as certainly literacy materials. It's not much point in translating having the Bible or the New Testament in a particular language if nobody can read it. 
And often nowadays, there are many people in the area who can read, but they can read a national language like English or French or Swahili or Lingala or something like that. And they have to learn how to read their own language. And we produce books that help them do this, working with speakers of the language. And then other books that interest people. So you need material in the language in addition to the New Testament or the Bible. Otherwise, people don't have a reading habit. More recently, we've been putting out material on COVID all over the world. There are many, many documents now, little booklets, posters that have been done in over 2,000 languages to explain to local people about COVID. We take reading in our first language completely for granted. Were it not for people like Margaret and Elaine and the countless others that have given years of their life to live in a remote setting so that a small language group can have scripture in their own language, millions of people throughout the world would not have the exposure to the Bible and countless other books and materials to read. I'd like to thank Margaret Hill for sharing about translation work on this episode. I hope her story gives you, the listener, a better appreciation for all the books and materials we have to read and take for granted, and helps you understand how someone from a small language group in a remote area can have God's Word and other materials in their own language. Her work and that of SIL has had a lasting impact all over the world. So that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it and will join me again. Other episodes and blog articles on a variety of topics can be found at congokid.net. In addition, Life Stories by Congo Kid Podcasts can be found on Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm Jeff Eels, a.k.a. Congo Kid, your humble host. Until next time, I send you off with a farewell in Lingala. Paninganangai, tikalamalamu. My friends, stay well. Hey, Malumuna. Hey, Malumuna.